I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, August 27th, 2012. Am I really going to get through all of that? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I'll give it a good college try. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And and the idea is, is that God's Word is the norm. God's Word is a canon. And, and I'm not meaning you know, like the kind that fires off cannonballs. It means that it's it's the measure. It works to test all things against the word of God. And God in his own word commands us to de- not deviate to the right or to the left of what is written and what is revealed. And so the idea is, is that when people bring to us new exotic teachings... And it, you think, is that really what the Bible says? Is that really from God? Is that really what God wants me to believe? Well, then what you do is you take out your Bible and you test that a new exotic teaching from the Word of God. And, and see, that's the idea, is that when you, when you come across new and exotic teachings, more than likely what you're dealing with are, well, doctrinal and theological weeds, um, yeah, not the fruit-bearing kind that bear fruit uh, for the kingdom of God, but weeds that actually end up choking out uh, the good stuff and making people unfruitful uh, in reproducing uh, Christians because they're not teaching sound biblical doctrine. Uh, they're not teaching the biblical gospel. They're off distracted, doing all kinds of bizarre things. And um, they unfortunately, we live in a time where the more novel the teaching well, the more ready an audience some you know that person's going to have, the, the more unique and exotic what somebody's teaching, the more it scratches somebody ear, somebody's ears. Well, the more popular they are, and so you know it, it, what I find funny is is that 
uh, one of the go-to criticisms of, uh, well, how should I say that? It's not exactly a criticism. Defenses by guys like this, uh, you know, men and women now who are teaching these weird things. One of their go-to standard defenses is, oh, those critics, they're just jealous. They're jealous because they're not the one whom God has given this brave new message to. And they're just jealous because they're languishing in insignificance while God is blessing this new message and giving me a wide audience. And see, yeah, you don't need to listen to those people because they're just jealous. What a... You know, you think, what kind of argument is that? What kind of defense if, you know, and so uh, from time to time, this is even leveled at me. And it's like nothing could be further from the truth. I, number one, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous of anybody, Rick Warren, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, uh, Mark Driscoll, or any of the guys like that. Uh, jealousy d- just doesn't factor into it. Uh, in fact, God has blessed fighting for the faith with a sizable audience for which we're very thankful for. So, uh, and, but the reality is, is I'd be doing fighting for the faith even if there was only a thousand people listening or a hundred people listening. In fact, when we started off, we had like nobody listening. And so the idea is, is that that's not really a biblical critique. Uh, when somebody gives a defense like that, um, it kind of generally falls into the category of a red herring. Now, uh, let me explain to you this way, okay? Let's pretend for a second that really it, I was just green with envy. Just I'm so green with envy because because <laughs> Mark Driscoll has more people listening to him than he listens to me. Okay, okay, let's just pretend that was the case. It's not, but we'll pretend. Okay, so I'm green with envy and I'm jealous. Now, would that automatically mean that my critiques of Mark Driscoll's strange ideas and exotic teaching, um, you know, biblically, that, that that somehow that's, you know, my biblical critique doesn't hold muster? Well, no. See, the idea is is that the, the, regardless of whether or not somebody is jealous or not, that doesn't answer the question, is what Mark Driscoll is teaching biblical, sound? Is it really what God has revealed in his word? See, regardless of whether or not I'm jealous or not, and I'm not, but it, regardless of whether or not I'm jealous, the question is, is Rick Warren twisting God's word or is he rightly teaching it? If he's, you know, see, whether or not I'm jealous has absolutely no bearing on whether or not somebody's teaching sound doctrine or false doctrine. And so when you went across an, an argument like that or defense like that, you know, you have my permission to say something like, well, you know, I don't know whether or not Chris is jealous or not. That's kind of beside the point. Let's open up God's word and take a look and see whether or not Rick Warren's properly handling it or not, because whether or not Chris Roseborough's jealous has nothing to do with it. it. The question is, is Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll or R. Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll, you know, Craig Rochelle? And others rightly handling God's word or not. You see, I, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, when somebody has to resort to red herrings and ad hominem arguments, that's basically a tacit admission that they haven't got a biblical leg to stand on. And they're engaging in rhetorical obfuscation in order to change the subject quickly lest they be found out for what they truly are. And that would be false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, and things like that. Anyway, just just a little <clears throat> note to start off the week. Okay, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am looking at this list that I have <laughs> compiled, and, go, and I'm asking myself, 
how on earth am I going to do this all? But the reality is, is that some of the segments are actually pretty short because, well, the the uh, the material I have to work with isn't very long. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's not as bad as all of that. Anyway, so uh, let's talk about what we're going to do here. I have uh, I promised you last week on Friday that we would get to Pastor Charlie's latest swarm emails. This is the se- <laughs> yeah, it's the only way I can describe. <laughs> I I love Pastor Charmley. I mean, great servants, fantastic Bible expositor, great contributor here at Fighting for the Faith with his emails. And from time to time, you can tell that a sermon that I've reviewed um, it just gets his his ire up, and and uh, you can tell because his emails come in swarms. And we read the last Ed, Pastor Charmley email swarm. There was three emails in the last swarm, and there are three emails in this swarm too. So we're going to be reading <laughs> the latest Pastor. Uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley email swarm. That's yeah, the only way I can describe it. I, and by the way, we have a brand new uh, Max Holidays. Uh, it, it's not a sketch. We have a brand new Max Holiday. It's not a sketch. It's a song. But uh, if you're familiar with um, uh, Monty Python, uh, you know some of their sketches were songs too. So in that tradition, we've um, we we have a brand new Max Holiday sketch slash song to play for you. We'll be premiering it today. Um, before we go into the break, and uh, let's see here. So we got that. I got a David Crank update. Uh, apparently, God has designed you to do extraordinary things. Yeah, these are the sim- all of these messages. They, they scratch itching ears and basically feed narcissistic personality disorders. Apparently, you know, you know, these guys think it's going to really do the church really well. We're going to grow the church by basically feeding narcissistic egos and giving them you know the red meat of narcissism in order to really make them focus on themselves and you know so you you, you do that you, you know you feed someone's narcissism and what's going to happen is is that those guys are going to be the ones that want to ascend to the stage to be the leader and so we're you know yeah and I think we already have a <clears throat> a swarm of those kind of guys anyway um I've got the Brian McLaren update I didn't get to last week and then I've got a fine blog post that I want to read for you entitled multi-site churches paving the road to a cult of personality and like I said that it, great blog post worth passing along especially in light of recent statistics put out by Leadership Network. Now Leadership Network um if you haven't heard me mention them before Leadership Network is part of what I would consider the Druckerite unholy trinity. And you're going Druckerite unholy trinity. Yeah if you're not sure what I'm talking about here go back to the May 11th episode of Fighting for the Faith of this year and listen to my lecture entitled Resistance is Futile You'll Be Assimilated by the Community. In there, I lay out uh, Peter Drucker's <clears throat> communitarian slash fascist ideology for you and uh, note the fact that there are three organizations uh, that are like directly affiliated to Peter Drucker's um, ideology, and they are the Purpose Driven Community, the Willow Creek Association, and Leadership Network. Anyway, they've, they've recently published a... Um, Results that showing that there's a huge growth in multi-site churches, and uh, a, a a very good blogger out there has written on this. I'm going to pass that along, and then uh, hour number two, our our sermon review. We're going to be listening to a sermon entitled "A Delayed Dream." A, a delayed dream. Can, can you believe that? A delayed dream, and this is by Pete Wilson of uh, Cross Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, with a name like that, I mean, a delayed dream. Which what do you think the biblical text would be for a sermon entitled A Delayed Dream? 
if I told you that this sermon entitled A Delayed Dream is from 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah, um, would, you, would you believe me? Yeah, and, well, it's best not to uh, to not believe me because you know, I'm just laying it out for you and telling you that a delayed dream apparently has something to do with what God has revealed by the prophet Elijah. Yeah, from First Kings chapter 18. So, yeah, it, we've got some strange things that we're going to be going through today. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers if you have a... And by the way, I'm really excited about this, but we're not ready to air the spots yet. But uh, <laughs> we picked up what, <laughs> what I consider like the most amazing company ever to be uh, a sponsor here for our program. And it's Think Geek. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I am so excited about that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we will be definitely highlighting good supplies and things for all you uh, basement living opinion givers out there. <laughs> anyway, we're not ready to run those spots yet, but uh, probably next week after the uh, Labor Day holiday here in the United States. So just want to let you all know that. And with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. Now, like I promised at the uh, opening of the program, we have an email swarm from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, all centering around, well, Jonathan Brozozog. All right, uh, email number one uh, from the uh, three email uh, swarm from Pastor Charmley. Uh, the headline or the subject line reads, Jonathan Brozozog is uh, dishonest. Dear Chris, listening to Jonathan Brozozog's The Prodigy in Me nonsense, I heard him quote Proverbs, quote, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, the actual quote comes from Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 16, which Brozozog does not give, and the word gift does not mean what he asserts that it does. It does not mean gifting or the gift which a man possesses, but the gift that a man gives. It refers to a situation common in the East and in the West, for that matter, where access to, uh, access to the great and the good is largely a matter of money. Major donors get to meet with the president, so we have either a man who has not bothered to check that his interpretation is right, or a man <laughs> just fishing for verses that can be twisted uh, into his proofs, which I think that's the second one is right. He's either deliberately dishonest or knowingly dishonest. Either way, he is dishonest. Checking the Hebrew would have helped as well. Now, that's email number one of the email swarm from Pastor Charmley. Email number two is entitled, uh, Jonathan Brozozog is an erroneous person. Dear Chris, in his alleged sermon, The Prodigy in Me, uh, Brozozog said, You are a spirit. You are created in the likeness and the image of God. God is spirit. You are a spirit. You have a soul, which is your memories and functions, your personality and all that kind of stuff. And then you live in a body. This is your address right now. This is where you live. <clears throat> At and that and that is false teaching. First of all, 
the translation God is a spirit is faulty. It it is better translated God is spirit. Second, God created Adam as a union of the physical and the spiritual. Indeed, the body came first. We are not spirits. We are a union of body and soul slash spirit. Every attempt to differentiate soul and spirit comes to grief in defining the difference. I have yet to hear uh, two such definitions that agree without there being actual knowledge of, of the one writer by the other. One being with the two parts, it is bad Greek philosophy that makes the spiritual part the real me, but our false, but our false religions tend to be hyper-spiritualized to teach that the body is just the vessel of the spirit. Let me pause right there for a second. Pastor Charmley, you're, you're right. It, it's kind of a, it's a Gnosticism that you're describing here, uh, where somehow, somehow people think that Christianity teaches that the body is bad, matter is bad, spirit is good. The body isn't the real you, the spirit is the real you. Yet see that, see the thing is there's not two of me, okay? And I'm not a spirit in a meat suit. That's not, that's bad theology. In fact, in this, this basically this idea that somehow the spiritual is the good part and the, and the material is the bad part, um, that's just, um, well... Gnosticism. It's a form of Gnosticism. So Pastor Charmley has uh, rightly pointed out that this is bad Greek philosophy, which is in really the genesis of the uh, Gnostic heresy. Anyway, he says, this is one reason why the sacraments are de-emphasized in so many of these churches. Last Sunday night, as I was at the Eucharist, I had been preaching about the broken body and shed blood, and I, and I thought... Why our faith is so physical, so bodily, our central act of worship about a broken body and shed blood, a physical death with a very physical sacrament. We eat, we drink, we do these bodily things. God has given us an incarnate Christ and an incarnate faith. It is, And it is not for nothing that we confess, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Yeah, by the way, um, because of sin, we're corrupted all the way through and through, okay? And, um, but our hope is in the resurrection. And Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, if you would. And um, if you want to know what uh, your, your, your physical existence is going to be like for eternity, just look at Jesus. He's the firstborn um, of the resurrection. You get what I'm saying? Anyway, <clears throat> Pastor Charlie continues, says, God made the body. God cares for the body. God has a body. Born in Bethlehem. Yes, he does. And now I am reminded of a hymn I sang a few weeks ago when I was presiding at a communion service in another church. Here's the lyrics. A uh, long time I, I after idols ran, but now my God's a martyred man. <laughs> that <laughs> yes he is yeah so the the question is does god uh does, does god rule heaven and earth yes does a man rule heaven and earth yes jesus christ is the god man yeah and and you know by the way you know that this incarnation the the incarnation is really really offensive to those who have gnostic leanings anyway uh, he, he, Pastor Chimey says, that is Christianity. No wonder someone who thinks that I am a spirit would devalue the Eucharist and make perfect sense. But then, I am a spirit is not Christianity. I am a human being, and so is Jesus. I am saved not by the work of a spirit alone, but by the work of a man. 
now we got some more lyrics. On the cross, thy body broken, cancels every penal tie. Tempted souls produce this token, all demands to satisfy. Lord, we fain would trust thee solely, t'was for us thy blood was spilt. Bruised bridegroom, take us holy, take us and make us what thou wilt. <laughs> Again, Joseph Hart is the author of this hymn. Pastor Charlie then says, there I, suggest, there I suggest is a Christian, and there is the gospel. I am a spirit, is Gnosticism. So, of course, it leads to pride and salvation by works. I am a human being, is Christian. I am a human being, and so is my Savior. Yes, he absolutely is. Great email Good theology. Pastor Charmley, in his third email in this email swarm regarding um, Jonathan Brozazog, uh, the subject of this email reads, Jonathan Brozazog's biblical ignorance. I get the feeling that Pastor Charmley didn't like his theology in his sermon. I'm just getting that feeling here. Pastor Charmley says, I did I I did just hear Brozog's Brozog say Nehemiah was not a pastor he was a construction <laughs> engineer yeah that's exactly what he said well that rather proves that someone did not actually bother to read the book he is allegedly preaching from uh, apparently not Nehemiah was a court official in the king, uh, the king's cupbearer in modern terms he was a senior civil servant the cupbearer did more than just bring the king his drinks he was then appointed governor of Jerusalem another civil servant post if there's one thing he was not it was a construction engineer yep this is true looking on the passion church website i find the following said by brozazog quote pastor jonathan's intense illustrated messages and wonderful sense of humor will impact you and your family and leave your face tired from smiling and laughing (laughs) this is a direct quote from the website pastor charlie says i have no doubt to that uh, to be honest, if I heard that Mr. Brozazog was in the area, I might go to hear him. It, it would be very entertaining. One would never know how he would mess up his interpretation of the text that he that he took. This is a man who has no ability whatsoever to understand a biblical text. I do not think that in the entire course of his alleged sermon, he correctly interpreted a single passage, which is entertaining but also extremely worrying. I note that the church website does not list any seminary, and I hope that he is not a Bible college or seminary graduate, as I would have to have been his homiletics professor. Anyway, (laughs) those are the three emails from the latest email swarm from Pastor Charmley. Apparently um, not a fan of uh, Jonathan Brozozog. All right, moving along. This is our new music for uh, David Crank updates. that note. <laughs> Who 
that's uh, Dreamweaver by Gary Wright. That's our new David Crank update music. Um, David Crank, oh, man. Um, yeah, I've, uh, Faith Church St. Louis, not sure what they have faith in. Apparently, it's faith in yourself, not faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But um, from his David Crank blog, you can find this at davidcrank.com, he, he does a podcast um, the the God has designed you to do extraordinary things. Podcast is the name of his podcast, and uh, they're kind of like little minute and a half SoundCloud um, motivational nuggets of narcissism that are just <laughs> yeah you have to hear it to believe it. I that this is being said by somebody who claims to be a Christian pastor. Um, well, stretches the bounds of credulity, if you ask me. But anyway, here's David Crank explaining how God has designed you to do extraordinary things. Uh, Here we go. You know, when you're younger, you're always dreaming about what you want to be when you grow up, right? Then you grow up and realize, man, I'm a little bored. Is this what I really wanted to be, bored? It happens to everybody. This causes a lot of men to go through what we call a midlife crisis. We leave the task at hand. This has defined us for years, being the, you know, responsible. So boredom is the thing responsible for a male m- midlife crisis. I thought it was our sinful flesh. Just, you know, just saying. Dependable, trustworthy, and we are trying to discover now who we are. Surely there's more. I want you to know today that being dependable, being consistent, being trustworthy, that's pretty superhero quality. You know, I think- yeah, so you want to be a superhero, right? Yeah. Don't worry. You're, you're a superhero. That's one of the things that kept old Clark Kent going. <laughs> he knew he was capable of more than the menial dis- task that he was assigned at work every day. But he, he really discovered his real identity as Superman. God has designed you with... He discovered that his real identity was Superman. I thought that he was always Superman. You know, he, he came from planet Krypton, right? And he arrived here with superpowers. Didn't he grow up on a farm in the middle of, like, nowhere? And the Clark Kent persona was, well, a facade to hide his superness, right? So apparently, according to David Crank, he's not even getting the story of super. This is like Superman heresy going on here. He can't even get the details of the story of Superman right. It's not like super, Clark Clinton was walking down the street one day and and all of a sudden he tripped and fell and, and tore his shirt and right under his shirt. Whoa, there's a big ass. Where'd that come from? You can't even get the story of Superman right. This unique blend to do extraordinary things and buried deep within the recesses of your soul today, there's something pushing you to do more and be more, but it's not going to... Something within the recesses of my soul is pushing me to do more and be more? Hang on, let me check. Yeah, no, nothing. Yeah, you, sh- you sure you have the right person there? But overnight, I want to encourage you today to, to stay with it. Even though you have temporary problems, discover your real destiny. Yeah, just, yeah, you might have temporary problems, but just discover your real destiny. The, again, this is coming from a Christian pastor. Yeah, weird, huh? Separate the distractions from your destiny. God has good plans for you. He, he does? Really? Wow. What if God's plans for me are martyrdom like the ancient church? You know, you know. You got anything you could tell, say, you know, what words of encouragement to, would you say to a man who's going to be fed to the lions for confessing Christ as God and Lord and the f- resurrected from the dead for, and crucified for our sins? What, what advice would you offer to, you know, the ancient martyrs or even today's martyrs in like Muslim countries who are going to die for their confession of faith? 
I mean, are they discovering their real destiny? Would you, what, would, what would you say to them? Yeah, I recently preached a sermon basically saying you cannot fulfill someone else's dream for your destiny. You've got to fulfill your dream. You can't be a success if you don't know who you are and where you're going. So today – And what was your text for that sermon? I'm curious. Um, cause that doesn't even sound like remotely biblical. Um, I really – I'm going to have to find that sermon. Yeah. Remember, God takes pleasure in you. He made you unique. You have superhuman qualities today. Really? <laughs> Yeah, no, this isn't feeding someone's narcissistic ego, is it? Be consistent. Discover who you really are. It's a lot of fun in the end, letting everybody know they can count on you all the way. God bless you. Have a great week. Yeah. Um. Wow. <laughs> that was just miserable and horrible. Okay, uh, so there you go. Uh, a minute and a half of n- nothing but pure narcissism. He preached a sermon. I, again, I have no clue what would he, his text have been for such a sermon. But anyway, uh, moving along here. Now I'm happy to announce that what we're going to be doing at the moment is we're going to be playing for you uh, our latest uh, Max Holiday sketch that will be in our rotation uh, during our commercial breaks. And so what I'm going to be doing, since I'm going to be playing it now, I will not be playing a Max Holiday sketch during the commercial break because I want you to hear it. By the way, the name of our new latest and greatest is I'm a Heretic... And I'm okay. That's the name of the song slash sketch for Max Holiday. So without any further ado, it's the world premiere of our latest Max Holiday, Bird, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater. Theater. Boy, did I mess that up. <laughs> it's the. <laughs> Hang on, take two. It's the. It's the world premiere of our latest Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater Church Day Soleil sketch. Here we go. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. I'm a heretic and I'm okay. I scheme all night and I lie all day. He's a heretic and he's okay. I twist God's word, I put on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen the Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. He twists God's word, he puts on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen the Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. He's a heretic and he's okay. He's keep all night and he lies all day. God's word, I take your ties and spend it on private jets. Have you seen my bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. You twist God's word, he takes your ties and spends it on private jets. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. He's Bad books that will land you all in hell I'll never say I'm sorry Cause I'll be there as well He twists God's word He writes bad books that will land us all in hell
right, so that was our latest Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater uh, Church de Soleil sketch. Oh, what'd you think? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> you'll laugh. <laughs> you'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here. We're not done yet. 
Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Buddy Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, just because the person's a pastor or a famous Christian author doesn't mean that they're bringing to you a biblical teaching. If they're bringing you a biblical teaching, you'd find it in, well, the Bible. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank all of you who support us because we truly cannot do what we do without your help and support by the way if you still want to get your uh, your bake sale items there's 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 still some left visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale if you would like to get your bake sale items they will soon no longer be available uh, so you want to act now if you can all right moving along Majestic mystery. This song makes me laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, mysterious majesty. He's apparently singing about the God that he believes in. You really can't know too much about him, though. My small hand can never So apparently Brian McLaren and a whole cadre of um, of the old emergent village gang and then a few notable new uh, people have come together with a Sparkhouse project entitled Animate Faith. And uh, we're going to listen to a soundbite from Brian McLaren's contribution. Can't explain you. Oh, Yeah, I don't know anything about you, God, but I just—all I could do is hold my small hand open and and do my best. Yeah. Anyway, here's Brian McLaren explaining how faith is a is a quest, and see if any any of this like makes any biblical sense to you at all. Here we go. I mean, when you begin to face these complexities, you realize why Christian thinkers and mystics have created two technical terms to describe two ways of thinking and speaking about God. Mm, Christian, who's in mystics? Mystics. Theologians and mystics? Thinkers and mystics. Christian thinkers and mystics? I didn't think mystics were big on the thinking thing. but So two different ways to, to speak about God. In the cataphatic tradition... We emphasize that our images and words really can help us to conceive of God and relate to God. So, so words 
can help us conceive of God. Got it? it means that we can talk about God. But in the apophatic tradition, we remind ourselves that God can never be reduced to images or contained by words. It means that reverent, loving silence is sometimes the most eloquent form of theology. Mm. Wow. Silence, the most eloquent form of theology. I, I wish he would give, like, a lot more examples of that. I, I, You know, Brian McLaren, with his <clears throat> books like A New Kind of Christianity, Naked Spirituality, and his forthcoming book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road?, I wish he would practice far more of this elegant, silent theology and um, spend a lot less time in what he would call the cataphatic tradition, using words that can help us, that, that are helpful. Now, by, by the way, okay, you'll notice that what he did there, and this is, this is a soundbite from, uh, from the Animate Faith series, which was basically put together by a who's who of of emergent uh, types. We're talking Brian McLaren, uh, Lillian Daniel, um, Mark Scandrett, Shane Hips, yeah, of, formerly of Mars Hill fame, uh, Nadia Bowles Weber, and others. I mean, and this is I mean is being heavily promoted by uh, Tony Jones and uh, Doug Paget. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's this is the emergent village gang getting together. We're getting the band back together. And uh and so this is what this is from, but you'll notice that McLaren what he's doing here, he's doing the typical postmodern thing, you know. Somehow what we need to embrace are two things that are seemingly contradictory. The cataphatic and apophatic tradition, silence and acknowledging that words are helpful. And wh- what is that phrase in there that, you know, that the words can't contain God? Do you know any real theologian that says that words can contain God? I don't know a single, single theologian who said, oh, we can grab God and we can contain him in words. Instead, God has revealed who he is and what he's about and what he's done using words, okay? I mean, that'd be like me saying, listen, you know, you, you folks out there, are you are you having a hard time pondering Chris Rosebro? Well, trust me, Chris Rosebro can't be contained by words. No, he can't be contained by words at all. In fact, you might want to practice more silence when it comes... <laughs> you, you understand, it's just ridiculous. It's But it sounds so spiritual when all of a sudden you, you, you put, put God into the sentence. But listen to what uh, Brian McLaren in his Faith is a Quest soundbite here from the Animate Faith series is guarding against. Listen to When we hold these two traditions in proper balance, we keep seeking God, reaching out to God, and relating to God, always remembering that God can never be fully grasped in hand or captured in a box. Yeah, so God can't be grasped in hand or captured in a box or known with certainty or anything like that. I mean, this is basically just a rehash of the emergent church postmodernism stuff without them using the name postmodern. So, oh yeah, the <clears throat> Animate Faith series. By the way, they have, uh, you know, this for children, preteens, youth, and adults, and leaders as well. I mean, wow, yeah. So if you'd like to uh, send the people in your congregation or your youths and preteens to hell, then, you know, get the Animate Faith series and, 
and imbibe heavily on nonsensical postmodernism because you know it's at the end of the day you'll no longer be able to say anything with certainty about God but just embrace the majestic um, mystery in total misery. Uh, we continue. From the Bloodstained Ink blog, you can find this at bloodstainedink.wordpress.com. Let's see who wrote this. Yeah, written by uh, Scott William Bryant. The uh, headline reads, Multi-Site Churches Paving the Road to a Cult of Personality. Earlier this week, the Leadership Network of Dallas issued a new report that highlights the explosive growth of Protestant churches committed to the practice of multi-site gatherings. As recently as 1990, there were only 10 documented examples of North American churches utilizing video technology to beam the teachings of a charismatic pastor to a variety of locations around a particular geographic region. But by 2005, the influence of these early methodological pioneers had fundamentally changed the spiritual architecture of the Protestant church. As more than 1,500 churches were now engaged in the practice of multi-site ministry, smaller ecclesial bodies began to take notice of the practice and its impact upon numerical, quote, success of the larger churches in their area. Consequently, many of these smaller bodies began to adopt a similar strategy, which in turn has only served to accelerate the widespread adoption of this multi-site ministry model. Now, today in 2012, there are more than 5,000 churches employing a multi-site church growth strategy in North America alone. And the question that begs to be asked is, how is this development shaping our understanding of church and the role of the senior pastor? On the surface of things, the development in practical methodology should not come as any great surprise to those who've been paying attention to what is happening in the evangelical subculture. As ever-increasing numbers of local bodies have warmed to the church growth methodologies pioneered by Robert Schuler of Orange Grove, California, more than uh, more and more have experienced dramatic numerical growth. At present, there are now over 1,600 megachurches in the United States alone, ranging in size from 2,000 to 30,000 members. And the question that faces these churches and other smaller like-minded churches is, uh, what do we do now to combat the limitations imposed on our restricted facilities? Clearly, as the evidence above suggests, the dominant solution just 12 years into the new millennium appears to be a move towards multi-site venues and the building of a ministry almost exclusively around the charismatic figurehead of the mother church. For while most multi-site churches have elected to deploy local worship teams on their various campi or campuses, uh, the one unifying factor across all locations appears to be the digitized pulpit pastored by the often self-described visionary leader who sees his own gifting as essential to the growth of the movement. Yeah, that's right. Vision casting, I think, would be probably, yeah, they've received a vision from God. So, interestingly enough, um, there appears to be little discernible blowback from the congregations at large. According to Reverend Gary Shockley, executive director of New Church Starts at the Board of Discipleship of the United Methodist Church, at least 50% of the two, uh, 621 new churches started by the UMC since January of 2008 were multi site venues. What's more, Shockley goes on to say that of the thousand new churches they 
intend to start between 2013 and 2016, they are targeting 60% to be multi-site extensions or satellites of vibrant existing United Methodist churches. All that to say, if the people in the pews were openly rebelling against these pixelized pastors, we wouldn't be seeing the explosive growth in this trend, nor would we see church planting ministries building their future strategies almost exclusively around this concept. So what is the problem? Well, as I've already hinted at above... One of the unifying element, uh, one unifying element is, is present at every multi-site church every Sunday morning is the presence of the senior or teaching pastor. This, of course, raises the question as to why his or her presence is considered to be the essential ingredient. If a congregation truly desired to worship as one church on many campuses, would it not stand to reason that there should be one worship band beamed to all the sites so that the church could worship together as a corporate whole? And what about one reading of scripture common to all or one breaking of bread led by the pastor standing before the entire body? When it comes right down to it, if we're going to make an argument for one church on many campuses, why is there only one element, the charismatic preacher, that is common to all the sites while everything else involved in the practical communal worship is passed off to be handled at the local level? What is so vital about his or her contribution? While the answer may not be pleasing to the ears of those that lead these churches, an argument could be made that as opposed to centering the practice of the church on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the proclamation of his word, many of these churches have made a subtle shift towards centering the church on the proclamation. That is to say, an argument could be made that many of these churches are leaning more upon the rhetorical giftings of their senior pastors than they are upon the content of their message. And when they begin to slide in this direction, they begin the slow, inevitable descent into what is commonly referred to as the cult of personality. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. I'm going to emphasize the word cult here, because one of the things that is absolutely like starkly similar to cults. And I mean that like cults, you know, like, you know, Jim Jones and things like that is that, you know, these guys are very similar in their approach. They are the man of God. They are the one with the vision. You cannot question or challenge the man of God. To do so is to challenge God himself and, you know, find yourself being thrown off the bus, things like that. Cult, I think, is the right way to put it. The cult, capital C, capital U, capital L, capital T, the cult of personality. Now, almost certainly there will be those that will argue that a cult of personality can develop in small churches just as easily as it can develop in large multi-site churches. Well, that's fair enough. I think many of us know what it is to be around a small church where many feel the need to be personally ministered to by the pastor as if his greetings and ministry were not uh, were more important than those of others around us. But here's why I think that the potential for this problem to emerge is far greater in multi-site churches than it is to emerge in small, single-site communities. When a small single-site congregation gathers each Sunday to study together, to worship together, to serve together, and to partake in the sacraments together as a community of believers, no one element of the service has been artificially inflated above the importance of the other elements. Moreover, when the pastor is on site serving amongst the community of believers, his life is on full display for all to see. This breeds a certain form of accountability via visibility as the pastor is never seen only when he is on and fired up. Instead, 
The pastor slash shepherd is seen as he walks amongst his people and as he interacts with his wife, his children, his staff, and even the surrounding community outside the walls of the church. In other words, a single site, uh, single site settings, a pastor is rarely afforded the status of a spiritual superhero because he is generally known by his people, warts and all. This is a great argument, by the way. This is absolutely true. <laughs> I mean... I've been a firm believer in uh, of the importance of small churches and uh, knowing your pastor and having your pastor know you. Well, here's the thing. In a small church, you know your pastor and your pastor knows you. You know his strengths, you know his weaknesses, you know his ups and you know his downs. And oftentimes when he is suffering the whole congregation is suffering and praying along with him. When you are suffering, he's there with you to suffer and to pray with you. It's 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 absolutely breathtaking because you realize that we're all in this as sinners together, and the gospel really, really makes sense in that context. Now, I, I digress there for a second, but let me continue this. Okay, so conversely, when a pastor preaches live at a remote site or even an, in an empty television studio, the congregation that watches him on screen never sees him outside of a carefully scripted and carefully controlled environment. So all they see is the meticulously staged, managed image of a spiritual giant coming at them on on a high-def, state-of-the-art jumbo screen. Now, consider, if you will, the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to his disciple Timothy and instructs him regarding the qualifications of an elder-slash-pastor. The overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. He must manage his own household well and keep his children in control without losing his dignity. But if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become arrogant and fall into the punishment that the devil will exact, and he must be well thought of by those outside of the faith so that he may not fall into disgrace and be caught by the devil's trap. Notice how little time Paul spends exalting the rhetorical gifts of the potential elder in question. While it is true that the elder must be able to rightly interpret Scripture and protect the congregation from false teaching, Paul does not seem terribly concerned with charisma and verbal prowess. Instead, he seems much more interested in discussing the character of the man in question because both the private and the public character of the man is going to shape the character of the congregation, both lost and saved alike. Thus, Paul argues that the elder must be temperate, self-controlled, not prone to violence, but gentle, free of of a contentious spirit, and free from the love of money. In fact, if you look carefully, you'll even note that he must be thought of well by those outside of the faith, suggesting that the surrounding community must know him to be a man of integrity and character as well. In a multi-site church, these qualifications simply cannot be put on display in any meaningful way. When satellite campuses are often separated by upwards of 20 miles, there is no way that the surrounding community in one region could possibly speak to the character of the pastor on the screen. And by the way, I'm going to point this out. Uh, The multi-site churches, 20 miles is not the limit. I mean, you look at what's going on at New Spring. Perry Noble has multi-site churches all strewn throughout all of South Carolina. And yet Anderson is in one corner of South Carolina. He's got... Uh, multi-sites in Charleston and other places. I mean, you're and in, in, in the case of Mars Hill, 
Mark Driscoll's multi-sites. He's got a multi-site in Southern California. Okay, I think he's even got one in New Mexico. And yet Mars Hill is supposedly a Seattle uh, congregation, right? So we continue. Moreover, how many people within the satellite congregation itself could speak to his character? How can you speak to the integrity of a man you've never you've never met him, you've never seen him, or interacted with his family or his staff? You can't. And so you don't know whether he lives in a massive home and loves money. You don't know if he's a gambler, a prescription drug addict, or an abuser of children. You know nothing about the man save for the image that is meticulously crafted cultivated and finally then beamed into your campus for your spiritual consumption consequently you don't truly have a pastor instead you have a pleasing image an image that knows how to turn a witty phrase as he delivers a sermon he often didn't even write by his own hand isn't it interesting that during the time of the Byzantine Empire, and this would be 730 to 842 AD, the Christian church became embroiled in an internal conflict over the use of icons and images. While some found the use of icons helpful in worship, many believed that images often stood between mankind and the thrice holy Yahweh, a constant looming temptation to worship the created as opposed to the creator. But now... More than a millennia removed from the struggles of our forefathers, we don't even hesitate to look upon images in an attempt to see uh, through the to the holy. We now invite these images into our lives and often ascribe to them the same kind of veneration that was once condemned as idolatry. This is a brilliant piece. Yeah, and by the way, I'll send out some links to this on Facebook and tweet it, uh, Twitter. Twitter. Uh, the, again, the name of it, Multi-Site Churches Paving the Road to a Cult of Personality. Well thought out, well argued, and biblically solid and sound argumentation. If there's any passage then that works against the idea of the multi-site, uh, well, it's got to be that passage uh, from First um, Timothy chapter 3. As well as Titus chapter uh, chapter one, yeah. How can you speak to the character of the man when a carefully crafted image is what's being beamed into these multi sites? Great, great argument. I hope that one takes uh, gets some legs and gets going. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time. It's been a while since we've done a Pete Wilson sermon. The name of it, A Delayed Dream. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Going down to Nashville. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Cross Point Church, Nashville, Tennessee. Pete Wilson presiding. He is one of these well-kept, um, seeker-driven, multi-site pastors who has, well, publicly come under the tutelage of uh, Rick Warren, um, recently making a trip to Washington, D.C. with him. But the uh, the name of the sermon in question that we'll be reviewing today is entitled A Delayed Dream. A Delayed Dream. And, you know, immediately the question should come to mind, I wonder what passage he's going to be preaching from. Now, as I've already divulged the passage he's preaching from is, well, <laughs> something to do with Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 18. And you're thinking... I don't remember Elijah having a delayed dream. I don't remember him having one either. But um, but then again, fidelity to the biblical text doesn't seem to be um, on the list of priorities for seeker-driven pastors. So um, without any further ado, let's kill the music. Here is Pete Wilson and his attempt at a sermon entitled A, a Delayed Dream. You know, something to do with Elijah. Here we go. Good, good. Glad you guys are here today. I want to welcome our uh, Bellevue campus and Dixon campus, uh, Hendersonville campus, those of you watching online and down in the acoustic venue. We're so glad that uh, all you guys are with us today. If you have a Bible, I want you to go to 1 Kings 18. All right, 1 Kings 18. Please turn there. I'm super excited. Um, our team in India is uh, doing an incredible job right now so far. Everybody's healthy, and uh, in less than 24 hours, I'll be on my way there to hang out with them for a couple of days this week and uh, just be a part of some of the amazing things that God's allowing us to do, starting churches and schools and feeding centers over there. And we have a big baptism service. I think it's on Friday of next week. I don't even know what day that would be here. I think it's Thursday here. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to be a part of that. And um, just so thankful just for you guys' generosity that continues to allow us 
to um, really go around the world and reach people with the gospel. It's pretty amazing. All right, so 1 Kings 18, we're launching this new series called um, uh, Waiting on God. And I'm really excited about this series because um, I don't know anyone. I mean, there may be some people out there, but I don't know anyone who has an authentically intimate relationship with Jesus that doesn't have some kind of season of uh, or, or period of, of waiting on God in their life. It always seems to kind of be a part of it. And, and it's not surprising because when you look through Scripture, you, you read these stories of like Abraham and, and Sarah waiting to have a child. And you read about Jacob who's waiting for his uh, wife, Rachel. And you read about Joseph who's waiting longing, longingly in, in prison to be rescued. And John the Baptist who waits in prison but is never rescued. And you read about Noah who waits like 150 days for the floodwaters to recede. And you read about about these stories like the Israelites who wait 40 years before they can go into the promised land and the disciples have to wait on Jesus to calm the storm and then after he's crucified they wait for the resurrection and so we see this over and over again and, and there is really so um so this is all about waiting on God okay is this undeniable relationship in the Bible between crisis and hope Right? There's this undeniable relationship between waiting and being transformed. And we see this all the way through Scripture. Now, the problem with this is that we don't like waiting. Right? I, I don't know anybody that likes waiting. But it, it's never been like a favorite pastime, but in our culture today especially, I mean, we, we want fast this and instant that. And any kind of waiting is like a major frustration. We've started to think that faster is always better. So we've become seduced by words like instant and, and easy. We've become quickaholics that are depending on getting what we want when we want it. And I, and I see it in my own life. I hate waiting. I hate waiting in traffic. Like if I'm stuck in traffic, I don't, I don't care if it takes me twice as long to get where I'm going. I'm going to find another route where I have to avoid like any chance of like stopping or slowing down, right? Um, I, I can't stand waiting in, in the line at the grocery store. I can't stand, I don't like waiting on commercials. And so that TiVo thing has changed my life, right? And so everything I watch is, is on TiVo and a little bloop, bloop, bloop. I love that sound, right? And it's just, it's moving through the commercial, right? So I don't have to wait on that any longer. And so that's kind of the culture that we're in, that we just don't like to wait. And so when things aren't happening the way we want them to happen in the time frame that we want them to happen in, we tend to get frustrated. And this impacts us spiritually, doesn't it? Because we start to make this assumption, I see this all the time in my life and the lives of people around me, that when things aren't happening the way they want them to happen in the time frame that they want them to happen in, we start to make this huge assumption that God is not with us. I mean, have you ever doubted God's love? Have you ever doubted God's power? Have you ever wondered if God really... So let me see if I have the problem right. Um, God is not giving me microwave burrito answers to prayers, and so because it's not happening as snappy as I want it, somehow I'm doubting God. So that's the problem? All right, let's see what this, if this text fits the problem. really has a clue what's going on in your life? I'm sure you have. Right? I know it's his church, but like we can be honest about this, right? You've prayed that God, are you kidding me? Prayer, like God, are you kidding? Like this is happening, like now. 
You pray that, God, am I ever going to meet the right guy or the right girl? God, am I ever going to get this job? Am I ever going to be healed from this chronic pain? Am I ever going to get to a place in this marriage where it's like easy and we're not having to work through all this stuff? And one of the things that I'm realizing in my life is that um, sometimes we have to face opposition in order to realize his omnipotence. I'm realizing that sometimes we have to face the impossible before we begin to see that God really is visible. I'm realizing that God is most powerfully present, even when it seems like he's apparently absent. That he is there, and he's working in my life. And so, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, I want to start there, and and we're going to kind of go backwards today and that we're going to look at 18 and then we're going to go back to 17, which I know is not the way we normally do things. But first King 18 is, is going to be a story that if you grew up in church, you're going to be familiar with this story. You'll remember the story when we kind of get into it, but what's going on in first Kings 18 quick background is the King of Israel at this time is a guy by the name of King Ahab and King Ahab is one bad dude. All right. And, um, he's an idol worshiper. Uh, one of the big ones was Baal. And so he's kind of in the Baal and, uh, not the one true God. And so it's caused this whole kind of mess in the kingdom. And so God sends Elijah in there and Elijah is supposed to announce that there's going to be a severe famine throughout the land. And the famine is going to be caused by this drought. So Elijah rolls in, he does the prophet thing. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a drought because of this famine uh, and blah, blah, blah. And nobody... Boy, this is a bad job of explaining what's going on here. Why don't we just uh, read it from First Kings chapter 17. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip back a chapter. I'll just read it. Let's, I mean, what's, the, what's wrong with having the Bible say what the Bible says? I mean, any particular reason why you don't want to see this in context? I mean, the backstory's right there in 17. You said you're going to go to 17 anyway. All right, First uh, Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except for by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, if you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. <clears throat> now, I've taught on this passage before, but I'll give you a quick synopsis of what's going on here. Ahab is a worshiper and his wife, Jezebel, uh, um, she and him worship Baal, okay, the false god of, you know, you know, if, I, th- where did, I think the Phoenicians were the first ones with Baal. But anyway, uh, you, the people would worship uh, Baal by sacrificing their, you know, humans to Baal. It was terrible god. But anyway, the idea was is that Baal was the lord of the sky. Okay, he's the one who brought the rain, who who then made the plants grow and and things like that. And so, you know, his domain was the sky. So here you've got Yahweh basically having his prophet Elijah tell Ahab, listen, yeah, so that you know who's really God, okay, 
Baal ain't, Yahweh is, it ain't going to rain until I say it does. And that this is not supposed to be possible, by the way. If you believe in Baal, you're not believing this This is, could possibly be happening, that Yahweh of the Jews would somehow you know, have the power to stop Baal from bringing the rain. But, you know, so this is a showdown between false gods, okay? So no sooner does he say this that God then hides, you know, has has Elijah hide so that he's not forced, you know, or tortured into saying, okay, okay, there'll be rain, you know, that kind of thing. He skips town and disappears, okay? And uh, there's not going to be any rain until he says so, Okay. So, you know, so then, you know, he was at this brook, God was tending to him. And then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I might drink. And as he was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks so that I might go and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it. And she goes, Yeah, sure, go ahead and make your thing and die, but first make me a cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son, for thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Wow. Amazing stuff going on here. So there's the idea, right? Oh, there you got it. Okay. That's kind of the setup of the story. And the reason why there's going to be a um, a, a drought is by the word of the Lord uh, through the prophet Elijah in order to demonstrate that Baal is a false god and that Yahweh truly is God. That's what's going on here. Okay, um, notice as I read 1 Kings 17, nothing in there about Elijah having a big dream for his life or anything like that. So, I mean, again, a delayed dream is the name of the sermon, and I'm not quite sure what this has to do with this text, but we continue. Nobody really pays attention to the old crazy dude prophet, right? And so everybody kind of goes about in their life until three years later when it still has not rained and they're all freaking out. Then Elijah comes back into the scene and he's like, all right, are you dudes ready to talk yet? Are you ready? And so now all of a sudden he has their attention. So in verse 19 of chapter 18, Elijah says, uh, tells the king, King Ahab, what I want you to do is I want you to summon people from all over Israel and I want you to bring all the prophets of Baal and we're going to meet up on top of Mount Carmel. Okay. And so that's kind of the setup to this. And in first Kings 18 verse 20, we'll start there. All right. It says, so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal is God, follow him. He's just saying, Hey, how long are you going to do this? This wishy-washy stuff, right? If you want to follow Baal, follow Baal. If you want to follow God, follow him. You got to choose. All right. But the people said nothing. I've, I've had sermons like that, right? Where you just kind of lay it all out there and nothing, right? Okay. And that's kind of what, like, he brings it down. He's like, you got to choose it. And so they're like, yeah, whatever. Okay. And then 23, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the woods and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. 
I'll call the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Translation, it is on like Donkey Kong, all right? It's like, let's do it. Let's do it like this. Yes, this is what your sermon's boring, but this sounds fun, all right? We're going to do this. So they're all like, this is good. Let's, let's go. So that's what they do. Both sides build this altar, right? Both of them cut up like the, the cow, right? They put it on the altar, on the wood. And, um, and here's the deal. It's, it's like a, a really cool game show. It's like whoever can get their guy to call fire down and consume the sacrifice, you know, is, is good. And so, um, uh, King Ahab and the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, you remember the story? They go first. And so they start chanting and calling on Baal to come down. And, and a lot, I like Elijah because he's just one of those like kind of crazy old dudes that just has enough edge, right, that he's kind of making fun of them. So he's like, hey, why don't you guys try yelling louder? So they start yelling louder, right? And they're calling for Baal. Not, still nothing happens. They start cutting themselves. Nothing happens. And so Elijah's finally like, all right, watch out. I'm going to do my deal. And so he goes up and he takes his four large jars of water and pours it all over the altar. Now, remember, it's supposed to burn up, right? So this is, I mean, this is crazy. He's just setting this up. He doesn't do it once. He ends up doing it three times. So there's a total of 12 large jars of water that he takes and he dumps on top of this altar, right? And then he kicks back and he says, all right, God, show him who you are. And the Bible says that fire comes down and consumes the whole deal, right? Now, this is a good day for Elijah, right? This, this is a really good day. His ministry takes off, all right? There are TV shows. There's a book deal. There's like, I mean, he's on the tour, right? He's on the circuit. Things are going really good for him. And everybody loves this story. It's why we tell him. Okay, <clears throat> what he just said is not true. Like, not true at all. Are you familiar with what happens to Elijah after this event? Did what, did he have book deals? Did Oprah call him up? Uh, did you know? I mean, all of these types of things that you know. Here, Pete Wilson is supposedly describing for us that you know, as a result of you know this great thing that Elijah had done. I mean, boom! It's like all of a sudden he's on the tour. He's he's speaking at all of the major church conferences. You know, he's writing a book, you know, things it's in fact, it'll outsell Sun Stand Still and Circle Maker combined. Well, not exactly. In fact, (laughs) the exact opposite thing happens. In fact, if you have your Bible, let me see. Okay, verse chapter 19, next chapter. Watch what happens. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. By the way, all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they were slaughtered there on Mount Carmel after God answered Elijah's prayer by fire, right? So did Jezebel repent? Nope. She was breathing out murderous threats against Elijah, basically saying, I'm going to have you killed, just like one of them, by this time tomorrow. So, verse 3, Then Elijah was afraid. He arose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was 
at his head a cake uh, baked on hot stones in a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Mount Horeb, by the way, is Mount Sinai. It's the same thing. So there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that, I have, that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what happens here? He is threatened to be murdered by uh, Jezebel. Okay, He flees for his life and he's terrified. Why? He says it twice. He thinks he's the only one living who, who believes in the Lord. He really believes that. Okay, And he prays to God, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. He prays that God would take his life. And he goes to Mount Sinai, to Horeb. God appears to him there and says, Okay, you're going to anoint this guy king. You're going to take, uh, you're gonna t- you know, take uh, Nimshi. You shall anoint the king over Israel. Um, this guy king over Syria. And Elisha, the, uh, Sh- uh, the son of Shaphat, he's going to succeed you as prophet. Basically, get your stuff in order. Anoint these guys. And you know what happens? Elisha's, Elijah, Elijah's term as prophet is now done. No book deal. No easy life. His life is now, his earthly life is now done. And God is going to take him away in a chariot of fire. That's what happens to Elijah. After the big victory, he's done. No book deal, no tour, no conference, no big time, no rock star status, none of that. What um Pete Wilson is saying here is absolutely the exact opposite of what this text says which makes you wonder did he even read this book could how could somebody who who's supposed to have been to bible school or seminary who's supposed to be a pastor 
a multi-site pastor at that. How could he say this about Elijah when the text says literally the exact opposite? I'll back it up just a little bit. Now, this is a good day for Elijah, right? This, this is a really good day. His ministry takes off, all right? There are TV shows. There's a book deal. There's like, I mean, he's on the tour, right? He's on the circuit. Things are going really good for him. And everybody... No, his, his time of the prophet is now done. End of story. Everybody loves this story. It's why we tell them in Sunday school, because it's just like, yeah, that is cool. Like, God, fire, yes. Like, and, it, and it is. It's, a, it's an amazing story. So we're all kind of familiar with this story, and we love stories like this. We love the miraculous stories. We love it when God comes through in a pinch and just does something amazing in somebody's life. We love the victory, but most of the time, we are completely unaware of what it takes to get to that moment of victory. And so while everybody's familiar with chapter 18 and everybody preaches sermons out of 18 and I've preached sermons out of 18, nobody talks about 17, which is the chapter before. And so let's go backwards and go back to 17 because I want to show. Now notice the setup here is that, you know, hey, you know, 18 is the big is the big showdown. He wins and now he's on the tour. He's, you know, his his ministry explodes. That's the setup, but that's not true at all show you this story, um, which just gives you a little bit of insight, all right, into what led up to this moment where God does something miraculous in Elijah's life, all right? So 17 verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe, that like, I, I love little things like that, that the Bible does that really make no sense. That's like saying Pete, uh, the Nashvillian from Nashville, right? Uh, but in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except for my word. So this was the setup, right? This was the deal where Elijah rolls in and he tells them, hey, this is going to be bad. There's going to be a drought. It's going to lead to a famine, all right? Uh, God has said these things through me. And then God is going to give Elijah some special instructions, all right? He says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So the message is, it's really simple. I want you to go sit by the brook and I'll take care of you. This is God saying, Elijah, I'm inviting you to experience something that most people will never experience. I'm inviting you. To what? God's saying, I'm inviting you to experience something that most people will never experience. What are you smoking? Seriously. This, this isn't an invitation. Hey, listen, you know, Elijah, come on, man. I just want you to experience something like no one's ever experienced before. This is a life and death showdown between the real God and a false God, Baal. To experience something that you can never experience apart from me. I'm going to give you the opportunity to live like nobody else has lived before. And he's saying, don't worry, listen, the birds will bring you something to eat, right? It's going to be like this whole Dr. Doolittle kind of deal. Like you're going to have a relationship with the birds. They're going to bring you food. So verse five, so he did what the Lord had told him, which again, that's a, that's the whole message right there, right? We can go home. We're not. But um, he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, to the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. That's a good life, right? I mean, that, that's, I, I can't imagine a better life than that. I'm sitting by the brook.
he's not on the beach drinking a Corona and having a ah, good night. And ravens are bringing me meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread at night. Do you think the ravens were wearing tuxedos? Were they offering him tropical floofy drinks with little umbrellas in them? And I drink from the cool brook, right? So I envision, I always love when I read stories like this, kind of think about exactly what this would look like. And so for me, I envision that what they're bringing him is prime rib, okay? And he's got the bread, so it's a prime rib sandwich, okay? And so the ravens bring him a prime rib sandwich in the morning and a prime rib sandwich at night, and he's just drinking from the cool brook. Everything is great, all right? This is amazing. And again, what's happening here is every time we say yes to God, we do experience things that other people don't. This is true. So, what? How did you? How did you now bring us into it? Every time we say yes to God, we experience things that people, other people, don't. <laughs> so apparently, Elijah went on vacation, and the ravens were wearing tuxedos, and he was ordering prime rib. And he got to have it served either medium or medium well, and you know it was all kosher. And it, it, I mean, he was sitting in a in a in a lounge chair, or chaise lounge. He was sitting in a lounge chair, basically in his bathing suit, working on his tan and being fed from ravens. And see, as soon as you say yes to God, you can have some really cool experience like Elijah did. Right, Elijah is experiencing this, this crazy kind of deal because he said yes to God. If you go back up, right, to verse uh, 5, he did what the Lord told him. And because he did what the Lord told him, he's experiencing these amazing things. And I think about in my life, that has been so true. Whenever I... <laughs> yeah, because you... Oh, man. And see, and look at now the ultimate example. Pete Wilson, he's done the same thing. His life is just like Elijah's. He said yes to things God told him to do. You gotta say yes to things God told you, and you can experience these crazy, ridiculously great experiences like Elijah did, you know, on a chaise lounge in in the Cherith Ravine, being served by ravens and tuxedos. I've been obedient to God. I've experienced things that other people didn't experience. I experienced things I never could have experienced apart from God. I think that this church nine years ago, I did not want to start this church. Nine years ago, I wanted to sell pharmaceuticals. I was dead set on that's what I want to do with my life. I'm going to sell pharmaceuticals. I'm tired of ministry. I don't so Pete Wilson is just like Elijah. That's why this story was written, apparently. I don't want to be in ministry anymore. I just want to sell pharmaceuticals. I remember sitting in an interview with this guy who knew me. And he's like, I can give you this job, but I just don't think this is what you need to be doing. I'm like, shut up. I want the job, right? Don't, don't tell me what God wants to do with my life. This, this is what I want to do. And, and then I felt like God make this turn in my life. And, and so we started this church and we were obedient to that. And now I look back over nine years and I'm like, holy cow, like the things that I would have missed that I never would have been able to be a part of. God still would have done what God has done, but I wouldn't have been able to be a part of that. Right, because I was obedient to him. I look back in the nine years, I'm like, are you kidding me? This has been amazing. This has been cooler than having a bird bring you a prime rib sandwich next to a brook, right? I, I would not exchange anything for the experiences and the relationships and the miracles and the things that I've seen take place in this church over nine years. I, I wouldn't want to miss that, right? So here's Elijah. That, that's what he's living. And everything seems good. And we can agree, right? Because Elijah did exactly what God told him to do. He is now in the center of God's will for him, right? What are you talking about? 
he's now in the center of God's will for his life. This coming from the guy who totally missed the fact that Elijah's ministry ends after this uh, this showdown. Have you ever heard that phrase, the safest place to be is the center of God's will? I hear it all the time, and it sounds really sweet and spiritual, um, but it's just not true, right? The center of God's will is not the safest place to be. The will of God is the right place, but it's not necessarily the safest place. The reality is there'll be many times you'll be exactly where God wants you to be, and it doesn't mean that it's going to be safe. Following Jesus may always be the right thing to do, but it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Now, let me show you how I know that it's not the safest place. There's just one little verse. It's just verse 7. A lot of people miss this, but it has huge significance in Elijah's life, right? Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Well, there goes his vacation at Club Med. Oh, no. There goes his prime rib sandwiches with the little ravens with the tuxedos. and I will... What? The brook dried up. I mean, the brook is his source of life, right? The brook is his source of hope. So you got to imagine Elijah's like, God, well, what are you doing? Like, I, I'm going to die out here. And we read the story like, wait, time out. So you're telling me God told someone to go to a place and then the bottom dropped out? Yep. And I imagine Elijah's like, God, you, you, you told me to come here. God, like, like you imagined, you see, the, you see the little details of your imagination aren't in the text. You see, and after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And see, you're sitting there imagining that Elijah was thinking, "Oh no, there goes Club Med. I was having such a great experience. I thought I was in the center of your will, God. All these things you're sticking into the text, they're not there. You've completely missed the whole point of this text." You're engaging in eisegesis narcissistically at that. God then says the word of the Lord came the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. There doesn't appear to be any crisis, no crisis recorded in First Kings 17. Just matter of fact, the brook dried up, which is to be expected since Elijah's the one who said it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. So do you think Elijah was sitting there going, I had no clue. No clue whatsoever that if it stopped raining that the brook was going to dry up. I thought the brook had nothing to do with the rain. <sighs> and this wasn't Club Med. Like, what have you done? And I just kind of picture Scripture doesn't say this, but that, you know, every day the brook's... Yeah, it doesn't say this, so you're not supposed to be preaching it. You're preaching your imagination, not the text. It's getting a little drier and a little drier. He's getting a little more desperate, like he's I'm sure like make nothing in the text about him being desperate. Draws out of sticks and stuff, and he's trying to find little puddles in, in the brook where he can get a little bit of water, a little bit of hope. Text doesn't say any of that. A little bit of sustainable life. And uh, text doesn't say any of that. And, and every day he he just gets a, a, a you know more and more desperate. Nothing there about Elijah's desperation. Not a single word. Not one hint, no breath of desperation mentioned about Elijah at this point in the story. Like, I wonder, like, how many of you may feel kind of like that today? You just feel kind of desperate. And you're kind of like, God, I kind of thought this whole following you thing was going to be different. Like, God, I thought you wanted me to marry her. God, I thought you told me I was supposed to move to Nashville. God, I thought you... Uh. 
Uh, no, notice, God, I thought you told me to move to Nashville. That probably wasn't God. That was probably your imagination. You wanted me to take that risk. I thought you told me I should turn that job down, and here I am six months later, and nothing else is coming open. God, I thought you told me I shouldn't, I shouldn't date that guy. In two years, my phone hasn't rung. Like, so what's, what's the deal? And I, I look at my life, and, and you think, like, at first glance, it appears as if the brook has dried up on you. It, it, it appears that your hope has dissipated. It appears that you're, like, at a dead end. And God has made some promises to you, and you banked on those promises. And quite frankly... God. God has made some promises to you. What's the source of those promises? Apparently, you received those promises prophetically, just like Elijah did. A direct revelation from God. That's what's going on here. So what are we hearing? Okay, this guy teaches that you can hear directly from God. Okay, Pete Wilson teaches this. And so now you got all these people basically out there with their they're water witching sticks trying to figure out what God's saying. That's a metaphor, by the way. And thinking, oh, I think God wants me to move to Nashville. Or I think God wants me to marry this person. I think God wants me to take that job in Europe. I think God... And, and then things don't go so well. I thought you wanted me to do these things, God. So now things haven't worked out well for them. And all they needed to do was think through the situation clear-headedly, but because they let their emotions lead them by the nose, and they blamed it on God, oh, I feel in my heart God's telling me to do this, they're now in a dire situation, and they're wondering what to do. Well, don't worry. In comes Pete Wilson with a bizarre eisegesis of 1 Kings 17, That'll somehow solve the problem because, look, God told Elijah to say it's not going to rain and then send him to the brook Cherith and, and then it stopped raining and, and the brook dried up. See, it's just like your situation. No, it's not. You want to know why it's not like your situation at all? Is because God, the Holy Spirit, probably is not the one who told you to move out of town. God, the Holy Spirit's not the one who told you to take that job or to marry that person or whatever. You got to knock off that subjective revelation stuff and get back to the sufficient written word of God. Stop chasing your spiritual subjective tail and use the brain that God gave you. You've been told your entire life that you can bank on these promises of God. And you've heard the promises, like God is for you, not against you. That he has a plan and a purpose for your life. That he's always with you. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice all, well, the, with the exception of the last one, that actually is a promise to the church, I will never leave or forsake you. Um, those are a string of verses ripped out of context and turned into bumper sticker slogans. And the theology and the context is lost in those sayings. You, that God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Well, he may be, but right now I'm standing by a brook and it's dry. And life is not turning out the way I thought life was going to turn out. And what I'm wondering is if God's even really there. What I'm wondering is if God's completely forgotten about me or if he's turned his back on me. There's another little phrase I hear all the time. You ever hear somebody say, God will not give you more than you can handle? I'm not kidding you. Once a week, like, I hear that, and it takes everything, like, inside of me to stay calm and relax. Um, because when you push back with those people, to be like, no, like, no, it says that in the Bible. I mean, it says 
that God will not give you more than you can handle. No, it does not. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's like a similar thing. It says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But it's talking about temptation. It's not talking about circumstances. And so what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians is that he will... What's weird is that here he's pointing out that a particular phrase is not found in the Bible, yet his understanding of uh, 1 Kings 17 is way off, and he completely missed it regarding what happened to Elijah post-Mount Carmel. Weird. God will never allow you to get in a situation where you have no other choice but to sin. Now, do you think that God will give you more than you can handle? Absolutely. Like, have you read this flipping book? Like, the, <laughs> every single person, like every, every church, like that's the whole point of the Bible. Like everybody, I don't care who you are. They get in this circumstance where God puts them in a place where it is way beyond their abilities or their resources or their giftedness. Like, and it forces them to rely on God. It's, it's all over the place. And so we get to verse 8. Look at this. Then, and this the, the word then is the key word here. A friend of mine named Perry Noble preached on this verse. And he talked about how that verse or that, that, that word is really kind of the hinge word to the whole story. Then, so if you like to highlight, underline, circle, whatever in your Bible... By the way, that explains a lot. Perry Noble's the one who taught you this interpretation of this passage. That explains why you, you're not preaching it right. That's the word, right? Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and say, There, I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. But the key word there is then, right? Then, like not before, right? Then, meaning God will often let your brook dry up. Before I don't have a brook. What are you talking about? I'm not a prophet. He'll move. Why? Well, because when the brook is dry, right, suddenly he gets your attention. I mean, let's be real honest. When you're cruising along in life, right, and, and the raven's bringing you a prime rib sandwich in the morning and at night, and you're drinking from the nice, cool brook, it is really easy to get focused on the blessings instead of the one who's providing the blessings. It's really and yet there's not a hint in this text that that's what Elijah did, is there? This text isn't about what you're preaching about, not even close. Really, really notice, notice again, here's the, here's the expectation of Scripture. The Bible is like, well, a who's who of Christians. And see, the Bible's all about the people. But it isn't about God. God is always there in a supporting role. He's there to help you achieve greatness in your ministry. Notice the expectation of Elijah. He pulled off that miraculous comeback out of nowhere on Mount Carmel, and then he was on the book tour. Okay? And that's what's you, that's the expectation for your life, right? And so look at the way God did it in Elijah's life. See, God coached Elijah to greatness. And so we're looking at the story, and the story is really actually about you. It's about me. And so God's going to, he wants to coach you to greatness the same way he coached Elijah to greatness. So God is basically a sub-character in your story. He's a supporting role. He's he's Mick, to, you know, and you're Rocky, Okay? And that's what's going on here. Elijah's rocky in this story, and God's Mick. And, and, you know, and it looked like God was going to let him down, but God came through in a pinch, and, oh, that's just great. Okay? This is not, by the way, this is not how to read the Bible at all. 
the story isn't about you. This actually is a history that tells us what happened back then. And ultimately, this story is about Christ. It's about the true God versus the false God, Baal, an idol. And in now, if we were to pull back from this and say, now let's take a look around us today. Is there any idolatry that is causing people to believe that they're worshiping a good, that, that, you know, that they're worshiping God when they're not? They're worship, worshiping a false God who isn't there. Oh, yeah, actually there is. Let me give you an example of idolatry. Reading into the Bible things that are not there and making, make, basically using the Bible as a pretext for preaching the God of your imagination. That's idolatry. So rather than Baal to contend with today, we're now dealing with the false God of Pete Wilson rather than the true God of Scripture. Hmm? Right? So who are you going to serve? The real God or Pete Wilson's false God? The God of his imagination. When he exegetes the scripture, his imagination's all over the text. He even says so. Who are you going to believe? The real God or the false God that Pete Wilson has imagined? Really easy to start worshiping the blessings instead of the giver of the blessings. I love the way uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And hadn't that been true in your life? When the brook dries up, all of a sudden, man, he's got your attention. And it's as if God is just saying to Elijah, hey, I haven't forgotten you. And I want to show you who's running this deal because when all hell breaks loose in your life, you can trust me. I know the brook dried up. Guess what, Elijah? I made the brook. I put water in the brook, and I'm the one who's now allowing the brook to dry. Elijah never had a crisis. The, the text doesn't say it at all. Dry up. I'm about to do some amazing things in your life. I'm and the text doesn't say that either. You're now basically creating an entire dialogue between God and Elijah that isn't recorded in this text, nor is it implied or even hinted at. I'm about to do things that you've never imagined. I could tell you about the fire coming down and burning. I could, I could do that right now, but you wouldn't even believe it. I'm going to do miracles in you and through you, but I need your attention first. I need you to listen. So now we have, in Pete Wilson's imagination, this little dialogue between Elijah where God scolds Elijah for getting all worried because the brook dried up. This is nowhere in the text at all. Listen, I need you to surrender. And so, so God now needs Elijah to... The text doesn't say that. Part of what I really want you guys to hear today at all of our campuses is this. Just because your dream is delayed does not mean it's denied. Unbelievable. Just because your dream is delayed doesn't mean it's denied. This text isn't teaching that at all. There isn't a single passage that says this. All right, just because it's delayed does not mean... It's denied. And, and, and this is so important because, let me, let me put it this way. I'm going to give you a picture that I, I hope will kind of stick with you. Um, whenever there's a promise, okay, uh, when a promise exists, there's two things that have to exist with the promise. There has to be a promiser and there has to be a promisee, okay? It's true. 
So if there's a, uh, there's a, a promise in your life from God, and, and there's hundreds of them in Scripture, there's always the promiser and there's the promisee. And in the context of a promise, all the responsibility, responsibility lies with the promiser, right? Um, this example of this, uh, at Christmas time, uh, we, my wife does a great job of like planning out our three boys kind of gifts and stuff. But I, I always love to save something for like two days before Christmas. Like that's, that's an exciting, and I want to find the gift that like kind of puts it over the top. It's like the Disney world dad and me kind of comes out. And so, um, I remember like two days before Christmas, I was walking through a local sporting goods store and I saw one of those, uh, arcade games, like the, 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 uh, basketball arcade game where there's two hoops, you know, and you shoot into a little hoop and it comes back on the net. Right. And they're extremely loud. Loud, and I just think our basement's not loud enough already. So uh, I thought that's perfect, right? And so I want to get that. And so I get that thing home and I open up the box and there's all these pieces. And I kind of have this luck with this sort of thing, but there is a very um, uh, important piece that's missing from this box, okay? Now, so there, there's a promise that's there. The promise originated from the manufacturer. It's an assumed promise that when I buy this box, all the pieces are inside, right? The deal is not that I make one of the pieces, right? Like all the pieces are, are there. All I have to do is open it up, follow directions, put it together. So when everything fell apart, right? When the piece was missing, I realized, uh, I, I'm not the promiser here. I'm the promisee. All the responsibility lies with the promiser. So what do I do? Send it back, right? Take it back. Right, because it's not all there. I, I, I return the complexity. I return the problem back to the promiser, back to the sender. Now, here's what I want you to begin to see in your life. Right? There's a promiser and there's a promisee. You are not the promiser, and this Messiah complex that you've developed, it's got to go. Right? You can't change your circumstance. You can't change the people around you. You can't even change you, right? So you're not going to change anything. So your main job while you're waiting is to simply learn to trust the promiser whom the responsibility lies on. See, the temptation for us is when it's not happening in the way we... Yeah, you're trusting him for the subjective promise you supposedly had written in your heart. No, God's only going to give you good and you're just going to you're going to go on the tour and all that kind of stuff. We want it to happen and the timing we want it to happen, that we want to jump in and we want to begin to try to manipulate and control what we cannot manipulate and control. I see this in my life all the time. Great example, like here at the Nashville campus, uh, every campus is different. It has different challenges these days. The Nashville campus, one of our challenges is is space. And so we're doing four, sometimes five services and uh, just trying to cram people into services. We've realized for a while this is a major problem. We don't have places to park. And yet we still feel like God's given us a, a very clear vision of what we want to do in this in Nashville and the people that we want to reach. And and so it's it's like this problem. It's like this complexity. And I know that there are promises that God has made to our church, but it's really easy for me to start to think I'm the promiser. That, oh, we have a problem. And now so I got to fix all this, right? I got to make some calls. I got to do it. No, 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 no. Notice uh, God's made specific promises to their church. Huh? Listen, I'm, I'm not the promiser. I'm the promisee. And so I push that problem back onto the one who made the promise in the first place. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't do anything while we wait. And in fact, next week, we're going to talk about what do you do while you're waiting. But this first step is key because this first step is all about trusting the promiser. Uh, Really, 
interesting thing. Uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Henry Nowen. And um, oh, he that made ex- an observation one time, something I had never thought about. He was That explains a lot. That explains a lot. Henry Nowen, one of his favorite authors, Roman Catholic mystic. Writing about how the central word in Jesus' life, central word, especially in his arrest, is the one. Again, I, I never really thought about this, but it's the phrase to be handed over. I don't know if you remember, but in the garden, um, when everything kind of swoops in, it's this key moment where there's Jesus and Judas, it said, hands Jesus over. What's interesting is that Judas is not the only one who uses that phrase handed over. God does it in Romans 8.32. It says, God did not spare Jesus, but handed him over for the benefit of all. Now, this, this phrase, to be handed over, plays the central role in the life and the ministry of Jesus because it divides his ministry in two. So the first half of Jesus' ministry was all about activity. Right In the first half of Jesus' ministry, it's activity, it's teaching, it's traveling, it's taking initiative, it's healing people, it's doing things, right? But then he's handed over, and now he becomes the one to whom things are being done. And it's in the waiting, ironically, that he ends up living out his deepest and his truest purpose as he goes to the cross. So notice Jesus is now just the example that you that you know this is going to happen to you too. You see, it's in the waiting that he found out his deepest purpose, just like you. And so, is it possible that in your waiting, Jesus is going to have you fulfill your greatest and your truest purpose? Is it possible? What text of Scripture does this actually come to us in a clear? coherent, lucid, sound doctrine? Answer, it doesn't. This is chasing your own subjective tale. And this isn't about being humble. This is about exalting yourself to the highest. It was in a waiting that Jesus offered the prayer that I I think it's one, if you can grab onto this prayer, if you can pray this prayer from your heart, it changes everything. Where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. I think that's the waiting prayer. That's the honest prayer. It's to say today, you know what? I'm not real happy about the way things are going down in my life right now. And there's some promises. There's some dreams that I have. And they're not happening in the timing that I want them to happen. But can you pray just like Jesus did? Can you just say, right, I, I, don't, I don't really like this, but, but I'm not God. Right? There's a God, and it's not me. And so, um, your will be done, not mine. Can you trust the promiser. Can you take your hands off all the things that you're trying to manipulate and control to speed things up and just say, you know what? Not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust the promiser. Will you choose to wait? Will you choose to wait for God to move? Will you choose to wait for God to answer the prayer? Will you choose to allow God to reveal this in a way that it starts to make sense? Will you choose to wait? Let's pray. Done. A complete Bible twisting, narcissism on top of it, complete messing up of the text, and you basically this is just designed to help you to hang on a little longer. Don't leave our church. 
I know you think that God promised you something and things haven't really turned out all that well. Don't worry. Just wait. It's see, Jesus achieved his, his ultimate purpose in the waiting. And you can be just like Jesus, too. And see, Elijah, you know, he had to learn how to wait even when his brook dried up. And I know your brook has dried up, but this isn't what the Bible teaches at all. At all. That's not what 1 Kings 17, 18, or 19 teaches. And if he were truly teaching us what the scriptures teach, he wouldn't have said, oh, and Elijah's ministry took off and he went on a book tour and all that kind of stuff. That told us, basically, that the whole focus of this is you achieving some great, big, grand, God-sized vision for your life without any clear teaching from God's Word. Unbelievable. Absolutely ridiculous. So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.